I didn't do 23andMe expecting to find anything. I saw that the email was there and I was just like, oh, cool. And I opened it and I was sort of like, oh, okay, click, 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 click. You have a BRCA1 mutation and I just felt like somebody had punched me in the stomach. I mean, I couldn't breathe. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories, Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. And I just felt like this is something more people are going to go through and we should be talking about it. You know, they're giving very serious medical news, but they're selling it as like this kind of fun gift you get for your mom on Mother's Day. You know, there, there, there's a real split between the way they market this stuff and what the information is that you're getting. And I don't think it's all on the consumer here. I really don't. I think every time they send somebody one of these tests, they should have in big red letters at the top of it, this does not mean you don't have a BRCA mutation. Dorothy Pomerantz is a writer and editor and a journalist. Like millions of other Americans, she has taken a 23andMe test. And like many other Americans, she received some results back that came as a surprise. Just a few weeks ago, she wrote an article in Stat News sharing her experience of receiving BRCA-positive results through 23andMe. Thanks so much for doing this interview. Yeah, thank you for making these podcasts. I think it's really helpful. Yeah, it's fun to hear um, just people's individual stories. Like, there's the tyranny of the anecdote, but then also, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the in-depth story of, like, what someone actually goes through can be really, really helpful. So, Well, yeah, when I was going to have surgery... I didn't, I felt like I didn't, I couldn't find patient stories. I couldn't find stories mm. where people were really honestly talking about the surgery and what you went through and all the different things that happened during it. And I, and I wished I had had something like what you're doing. So. Oh, interesting. It's really appreciated. <laughs> Great. That's always nice to hear. So um, I feel like probably a lot of our listeners, at least the genetic counselors will have read your piece, but maybe some will have not. So August 8th, Stat News published an article that you had written, 23andMe had devastating news about my health. I wish a person had delivered it. Um, I'm not always like the first one to see news, but that day I think I might have been the early one to see that on Twitter. <laughs> um, and I was so happy just to see from the headline of your article that you really valued the experience that you had with a genetic counselor. <laughs> I did. Um, and you were actually writing that article quite a bit after that you went through that experience. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I had my last surgery in April. April 1st was my last surgery. Okay. Um, and so what led you to write that article and what has the response been like? The reason I wrote the article is because I felt like I had an experience that more people are going to have. I didn't do 23andMe expecting to find anything. I don't have a long history of cancer in my family. We're not one of these families where like my mother had cancer and all of my aunts and my grandmas and everybody. So I did 23andMe almost on a whim, like completely unrelated to any concerns about health. And yet I got this terrible news. And I just felt like this is something more people are going to go through and we should be talking about it. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, I mean, just statistically, it makes sense. A lot of people have had the experience that you've had. And then sometimes it's hard to know how many of those people follow up with their doctors, how many yes. people, when they follow up, actually get help yeah. <laughs> referred to the right person. Yeah. I mean, I felt very lucky because when I got that news, you know, I have a gynecologist who I love and trust. And like, I was able to get her on the phone right away. You know, I called her and I said, oh my God, this is horrible news. Tell me this isn't real. And it's funny. Her response to me was actually, this is great. She's, and I was like, what do you mean this is great? This is like <laughs> the worst news I've ever gotten in my entire life. And she said, no, this is great. Now you know, and you can do something about it. Yeah. And I was 100% not prepared to feel that way mm -hmm. in that moment. But she 
sent me right to a specialist. She got me, who got me right into a genetic counselor. I had all these people lined up who were available to me and who are wonderful healthcare professionals in their own right and were there to help me through this. I can't imagine getting this news and like not, maybe not having a gynecologist or trying to find somebody to call to help with this or trying to find a genetic counselor and going through websites and stuff. Like it yeah. feels like it would be overwhelming and terrifying. Just, just trying to Google what to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, and I know you talked a little bit in the piece about how with 23andMe, you click through and they have information about, you know, this is going to be BRCA results. This is important information. Kind of give all these caveats. Mm-hmm. Um, and I appreciated how you wrote up how you just kind of click through because I think that's what <laughs> 99% of people do. Um, and Trinity 3 and Me, I think, has got both a lot of accolades and a lot of criticism for their copy, which is quite clear, I think, if you take the time to read it, which most people, of course, don't. <laughs> right. So when I did, I interviewed them for the story, and they sent me statistics that said, you know, we did tests of showing people this documentation, and we found that after they read through it, their understanding of what they were going to see was like 99% or something off the charts. And and I felt like, yeah, I really understand how that happened in the setting you're talking about. Right. But when you're at home and you're not really expecting to be getting bad health news, you just don't pay attention. And I also just don't know if there's any level of reading a tutorial, even sort of a very well done one like the one they do, that can prepare you for news like this. Like that's why doctors do things in person. Um you know, they don't send you letters in the mail that say you have cancer. <laughs> right. Even if they call you, they st- it's still a conversation. And I just, you know, I, I have gotten a lot of pushback, a surprising amount actually, from people saying, well, you knew what you were getting. Like, if you weren't prepared to get this information this way, then you shouldn't have asked for it. And I sort of feel like, no, I don't feel like this is a caveat and poor situation. Um you know, they're giving very serious medical news, but they're selling it as like this kind of fun gift you get for your mom on Mother's Day. You know, there's a real split between the way they market this stuff and what the information is that you're getting. And I don't think it's all on the consumer here. I really don't. Yeah. If you look at their website, it's like bright colors that are really happy, meet your genes. And they're going to highlight, you see names of like genes right up at the top, but that aren't very meaningful to people. Uh You know, then like most websites now use kind of cheery icons. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And bright colors and all just looks really fun. (laughs) Yeah, like they have these personifications of the genes up there right now that look like a um, like a Target ad or something in the colors and the way that they're marketing it. And I just, I think that they, they're trying to have it both ways and I think that that's hard. And I also think that the company will be better for getting feedback like this. And I think that they're, you know, big girls and boys over there who can take it. Yeah. I mean, they're used to getting criticism Yeah, <laughs> from genetic counselors, at least. But at the same time, I would not have gotten this information if, if I hadn't done 23andMe. Right. And I think that's really interesting in that, you know, BRCA testing, commercial BRCA testing has been around and available for about two decades. And most of the time, the testing is covered by people's insurance when they meet certain criteria, as you certainly did. People aren't excited to go in and talk to another counselor about their cancer family history or to like find out if they have some like bad news and need to have different medical management. (laughs) Yeah. So I feel like 23andMe is kind of done a good job of getting people interested in genetics and educated about it, but then it's kind of like a slap in the face once in a while. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I, my doctors had certainly talked to me about it, but their conversations with me were always, well, you should think about doing this. You can, you can, it's up to you. You know, there wasn't that extensive history that made them say, yeah, you're a red flag patient who needs to get this testing done. And I feel like, I don't know if that's shifting a little bit now, but I feel like that has been a problem with how genetic testing is often presented to patients. And it's definitely optional. There's valid reasons for patients not to want to do genetic testing. But 
um, something like a mammogram, a doctor just says you should do this. <laughs> right. right. Um, you can decline, but it's, you know, it's not necessarily reasonable at a certain point. Yeah. I, I, I suspect that that's changing as well. Um, just from dealing with the genetic counselors I've dealt with and the doctors I've dealt with, it seems like there's probably more of a push that if you can get this information, you should get this information. Yeah. And your case too, I, like in your article, you know, you commented, even though your paternal aunt had died of breast cancer at 37, you know, all, you didn't have any other cancer in the family. People lived to older ages. So it was kind of a limited family history, but then from a genetics standpoint, that's a striking family history huh. <laughs> um, because your aunt was so young, um, more so because it was on your father's side. So you wouldn't necessarily expect to see that much more history, especially if it was inherited through your grandfather. And then because you're Ashkenazi Jewish. <laughs> right. So you just like that prior probability is that much higher. But I don't know. I think that a story like this um, could probably help people more cautious about 23andMe testing, but maybe we'll just encourage more people to pursue clinical genetic testing, you know, if they thought that their family history was more limited, and then they're kind of like, oh, that kind of looks like my family history. <laughs> well, the thing that upset me the most in this whole process, aside from having to have surgery and stuff, or choosing to have surgery, I should say, um, was when I learned that 23andMe actually only tests for three variants of the BRCA mutation. I actually didn't know that until after I wrote this story and I went to them to report it out a little more. Mm. I guess that it had been in the tutorial, but I didn't know this at all. Like when I was talking to my doctors, they would sort of say, yeah, it's not great. It's really, we don't consider it great, but I never really asked them deeper about, well, why, why isn't it great? Mm -hmm. When they told me that, and then I spoke to a geneticist who said, yeah, it's like spell checking three pages out of a 1,000 page book. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> thank God I did find out. Because what if I had gotten a clean bill of health, but I did have this mutation? Yeah. Like, that's even scarier that people might use this as a diagnostic tool when it's not. Yeah. And that's where, you know, it's kind of like lucky that you have that Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry because the three variants that they're testing for are those three variants that are common in people of Ashkenazi ancestry. But I even heard someone say that recently at a party. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, I did 23andMe. And she was like, oh, I'm glad I don't have the BRCA genes. Right. And just that false reassurance is just really concerning. Yeah. And I mean, I've seen a lot of people out there talking, people from the African-American community and the Latina community where it's in these communities as well. Mm -hmm. And again, like 23andMe is, they, it just feels like they're trying to have it both ways. So they, they're out there and they're saying, this is an FDA approved test. It's really, really good. It does a really good job. But only if you happen to be an Ashkenazi Jew, because that's when you're going to have these potential mutations. For the rest of you who might have this very serious condition, you're not going to find it here. Yeah. I think that FDA approval just adds that additional layer of confusion because most genetic tests are not FDA approved that are actually higher quality and just for kind of convoluted re reasons. Oh, really? <laughs> 23 and, yeah. Oh. That genetic testing is really just something that's under-regulated. Oh, so. That's so interesting. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Yeah. The, I mean, the genetic tests at this point that you see that are FDA regulated are going to be like a companion diagnostic where the results of the test are going to determine eligibility for a certain drug, for instance. Um, but otherwise, they're not FDA regulated. And a lot of that has to do with how tests are done. And it's a little bit individual from laboratory to laboratory. But it's a really uh, murky area. <laughs> wow, that's really interesting. 23andMe in some ways is one of the better companies, but just with an increased marketing of genetic testing directly to consumers, not all of the tests are, you know, good quality and they all have these shiny marketing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's such a mixed bag. It's like, it is good that it's getting people talking about genetic testing. And I do applaud these companies for making this something that's just people, like when you say genetic testing, people know immediately what you mean. And that's because of their marketing efforts. But at the same time, it's not taking genetic testing to the level that it should be for people to really like be using this as a tool to manage their own health. I mean, the at-home ones aren't. Right. One of my 
colleagues, genetic counselor, co-published with another genetic counselor recently an opinion piece, um, but just kind of making the point that the, the direct-to-consumer testing that's available is just increasingly blurring the line between what's recreational and what's diagnostic and what you can trust and what's actually like medically meaningful mm-hmm. and what might tell you, well, your earlobes are, are not attached. <laughs> right. It's that blurred line that's... Um... That's an important line. <laughs> it shouldn't be blurry. Yeah. So you called your GYN and then did you go in to see her? Did she refer you to a specialist immediately? She referred me to a breast doctor immediately. I believe I saw my OBGYN first and she checked. I mean, that's the thing about ovarian cancer. I mean, she checked me as much as she could. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's, you know, she sort of said. Transvaginal ultrasound. Yeah. Exactly. She sort of said, if these tests are right, then you have to have your ovaries out. Like, it's just non-negotiable. You have to have them out. And you were 47 at the time, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, And then when I went to my, I went to the breast doctor, you know, she really gave me the, um, ah, don't, you know, we're not going to worry about this right now. (laughs) She was like, we just don't take action based on 23andMe. She said, she said, well, we can talk about it, but let's just do another test before we like get too far down the line. Uh-huh. Um, and she, and luckily there was a genetic counselor in her office that day. So she was able to pull her right in and I was able to talk to Danielle and um, she gave me a test right there. And, you know, she said to me, these tests are pretty accurate. Uh, you know, she said, they, they, you know, it's a pre, it's a pretty good test, but let's not jump the gun until we do another test. Yeah, and that that all happened within a matter of a week that I was able to see both doctors. They were, again, which is why I feel so lucky in these circumstances. I mean, they they both just like opened their doors to me really quickly. Busy doctors who, I don't know why they did it, but I'm grateful that they did. Well, I mean, it is something, you know, this is 2% of Ashkenazis about have a BRCA mutation. For other people, it's like in the general population, it's more like 1 in 300 or so. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, it's not that common. So, you know, yeah. for a doctor who knows what what's what, like that gets priority usually. <laughs> yeah, which I was grateful for. Had you heard of genetic counseling before you met with Danielle? I had because other doctors had talked to me about it before. So um, I think when I was getting pregnant... When I was trying to get pregnant, uh, uh, my doctor had said, well, you might want to consider genetic testing. And I had looked at it and talked to her about it. I, I think at that point my insurance wouldn't have covered it, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if that's just because it was sort of 15 years ago or um, I, I don't know why. But, but the, the conversations we were having then, it was going to be very expensive. So uh-huh. I sort of was like, I'm not really worried about anything. I'm not going to do this. And then... It had come up a couple of times in talking to my different sort of gynecologists and talking about um, my aunt who had died of breast cancer. But again, it was just sort of like, we can set you up with somebody, here's a pamphlet. But again, there was never this sense of you looking at your history and who you are, you're in the range of people who should be getting this testing. Now, I also, I have colitis. So one of my doctors had said to me at one point, you know, sometimes the genes that cause colitis and the genes that cause breast cancer are, are pretty similar. And so that's another reason why you might want to do this. But everybody who talked to me about it made me just, just, just gave me the sense that like, if I chose not to do it, that that was probably okay. Yeah. Because as you said, it's, it's, a, it's 2% of the Ashkenazi Jewish population. So it's, it's very small. I guess, yeah, it's relative. I mean, to me, like 2% sounds small. And then when you say like 1 in 50, or it's really 1 in 40, some are like 1 in 2 and a half, but like 1 in 40 to me sounds a lot higher. I guess that's true. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny how it changes that way. And then when you factor in the family history and the fact that it was on your father's side and how young your aunt was, all of a sudden you get to like quite a high risk. But it's, I mean... I think also it's interesting that often, you know, meeting with a genetic counselor usually should be just to learn more about genetic testing options, um, you know, which could include cost, but not necessarily that someone needs to do genetic testing. But often people assume that if they're going to see a genetic counselor, like that means like they should be ready to have genetic testing done. Uh, Yeah, I think that was certainly my assumption that that if I was going to meet with somebody, I was going to get the testing done. 
Yeah. And then what was your experience actually like when you met with the genetic counselor? It was great. Um, you know, she was just, she just had a perfect demeanor. So she was really, really smart, which I like. <laughs> and um, she was really calm. And she came in and spoke to me. And, you know, we just sort of talked about it kind of broadly. We did the test, and I was going to Italy on vacation. And um, she said, well, we'll probably get the results back while you're in Italy, and then you can come in when you get back. And I said to her, I can't know that the results are out there, and I don't know what they are. I said, I, I have to get them. <laughs> and she said, mm -hmm. well, I refuse to email them to you. <laughs> and I said, that's fine, but will you call me? And she agreed. We had a long conversation about it. And she said, like, this is not really how I like to do this. But at that point, I, I had already sort of come to the decision in my head that, that this was probably what was happening. And I knew the implications. I had done so much research at that point. I, I was calm about everything. Yeah. And so she agreed. And I was in Italy. And she called me to tell me the results. She told me that the 23andMe results were correct, and then we talked for a while, and she said, you know, what do you need right now? Do you need to ask me questions? Do you need more information? Do you need to go talk to your family? Do you need to cry? Do you want to sit silently on the phone? You know, she just said, you tell me what you need. And so we talked a little bit more about the, you know, with, with her, my conversation was really okay, this is right. Because mm -hmm. my conversations about surgeries and those kinds of things were conversations I was having with my doctors. Right. Um, but she was very empathetic. And when she called, she knew she was delivering bad news to me. And she delivered it in a way that was delivering bad news to somebody. And, um, you know that made a big difference. Like feeling that empathy on the phone and hearing her voice and hearing her sort of respecting the seriousness of what she was saying to me, it was very strengthening to me. Yeah, something that you can't get from a chatbot. <laughs> no. no, no matter how good the tutorial is, it's still a cold, look, I'm a writer. <laughs> I love words, but a tutorial is still just a bunch of words on a page. And it's not a human being, you know. And, and I wasn't physically with her. She wasn't physically holding my hand. But I felt like my hand was being held. I felt like somebody was telling me, this is hard, but you're going to be okay. We'll be back with patient stories in just a minute. If you would like to speak with a genetic counselor but don't know where to start, Great Genetics is here to help. We know that finding a genetic counselor can be challenging. Here at Gray Genetics, we offer genetic counseling in a variety of specialty areas. Whether you're interested in cancer, family planning, or cardiovascular genetics, you can connect with a certified genetic counselor who will evaluate your family history and even coordinate testing if necessary, all over the phone or secure video conferencing. Check out this service and more on graygenetics.com. That's G-R-E-Y genetics.com. And then it seems like you'd kind of decided even before you got those results that if it was confirmed, you were going to go ahead and have a preventative mastectomy and have your ovaries removed. What was your experience like with, with those surgeries? Was it about what you expected? Um, I, I had definitely decided that. I mean, I think at that point I was, I was very much leaning that way. As soon as we got that news, you know, I was like, that's okay. <laughs> we're doing this. We're going to have surgery. Um, I was scared. I've had C-sections, but I had never had anything beyond that for surgery. Uh, I worked with my doctors and I said to them, you know, when I went to my doctor to talk to her about it, my breast doctor, she said, you don't have to decide anything right now. You can decide next year. You can decide five years from now. You never have to make a decision to do this. Uh, but here's how we're going to monitor you if you, you know, if you don't want to have surgery. And they very much were saying to me, and that's a fine decision. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they really went out of their way to tell me that. And when I said, no, 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 I want everything out. Like, and here's how we're doing it. They were like, 
this is also a great decision. We're here for you. You know, it, it was great because I didn't feel like I was going to get shamed either way by them. They didn't try to push me into anything. Um, I arranged the surgeries. I found out in July and I decided I wanted to have all of the surgery done by the end of the year because I had met my deductible. And I kind of hated that I had to make decisions based on that, but I felt like I did. Mm-hmm. Um, I opted to have my ovaries out first because it was the smallest surgery. They could do it laparoscopically. Then sort of eight weeks after that, I think I had the double mastectomy. And I arranged to have that December 10th so I could be out of work for two weeks and then have Christmas and then be able to go back to work after the first of the year. So I'm a very practical person. <laughs> like I just sort of <laughs> arranged everything that way. And, and I'm glad I did. Uh, you know, going into pre-op for the first surgery, even though it was a small surgery, I had never been put to sleep before. I had never been in a pre-op before. Um, it was terrifying. And I had recovered from C-sections, but there's a difference between recovering from surgery when you're taking care of a baby and having your hormones drop to zero and trying to recover from surgery. Yeah. Um, and I, ha- I had a patch and estrogen pills and stuff, but this, the, everybody had told me, oh, this is a really easy surgery. It's a really easy surgery. And when five days after the surgery, I still was uncomfortable and I couldn't drive, uh, I got really upset yeah. and really worried. And I felt like, how am I going to handle a much, much bigger surgery after this? Um, I was a really bad recovery patient from that surgery. And during that time, a friend of mine's wife died of breast cancer. Oh, man. And um, she had been keeping a blog, and I went back and I read her blog, and I read everything that she had gone through, and I just thought, oh, my God, I'm, I'm going through this. Like, if she was able to go through what she went through with chemotherapy and surgeries and going from doctor to doctor and all of this awful, awful stuff, and I just, I just said, I'm doing this. So that helped me to prepare for the next surgery. And I also, a friend recommended some, some kind of hypnotherapy to mm-hmm. get me to calm myself down. And I started seeing a therapist and sort of going in and crying with her every week. Yeah. Um, my mother-in-law came for the period when I was recovering from the mastectomy. So that was also very helpful. So by the time I went in for the mastectomy, I was, I was prepared And I knew people had had different kinds of complications from that. So sort of every day of my recovery that I got through without something weird happening or an infection or a complication, I was just like, yay, one more day. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And um, it, you know, it was uncomfortable and having drains in is really horrible and weird, but I got better day by day and my husband was next to me the whole time and he was giving my me- my medication and emptying the drains and um, I watched a lot of TV and I slept a lot and I got through it. You know, it was, it wasn't, I had worked myself up in my head about how bad it was going to be and it, it didn't turn out to be as bad as I thought it would. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I guess um, you have low expectations for. I did. (laughs) (laughs) That made it less bad. Yeah. Um, I guess, especially when you compare, you know, what it's like to go through those surgeries for preventative, um, preventing cancer with, you know, in-depth looks like blog posts related to someone's experience with cancer. Yeah. I mean, when you read about people having this surgery after chemotherapy, the, the, the potential for problems is just it's exponentially bigger. And to know that sort of I had very healthy tissue and I didn't have any kind of, you know, necropathy or anything from chemo and I was really healthy. And to know that I was healthy and I could get this done and deal with this healthy instead of dealing with it as a cancer scare with chemo, I really did feel grateful every day. That, that, that even as bad as it was, I knew, I knew it would have been so much worse. And also that if I had waited until I was 55 or 60 or I don't know what, it just gets harder and harder to recover from things. Um, I also felt grateful that I was sort of young enough to recover pretty well. Right, yeah. Yeah, late 40s is probably 
I don't know, can there be an optimal time for surgery? Maybe it's late 40s. <laughs> I think so because I was done having my kids. I certainly was not having any more kids. Um, I'm in a very happy, committed marriage, and my husband's great. Um, he didn't care about any of sort of the, you know, getting rid of my breasts or anything like that. Um, and I kind of get to skip menopause. Like, I hadn't gone into menopause yet, but now I just have estrogen and progesterone every day, and I, I'm kind of not going to have to deal with it, which I think is kind of amazing. I mean, I guess I will at some point, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah, but so far the just taking the hormone replacement therapy has been good for you. It's been great. The hormone replacement therapy has been fantastic. I mean, I, I feel great. great. That's so nice to hear. I, see, I hear stories from women who don't feel great, so it's always nice to hear the stories where people have like a really positive experience with that part of it. Which again, I feel so lucky about because I do. I, I did talk to women who said it was, that it didn't work for them or it was horrible, and I just feel really lucky that it's working very well for me. Yeah. So you have um, how many children do you have? Do you have sons or daughters, and do you have siblings? I'm wondering how you share this information with your family members. So I have two children. I have a daughter and a son. Um. Telling them about this was emotionally the hardest part of it, even harder than the, the sort of like losing my body parts. Um, I was so scared to tell them, especially because my, my daughter is 15, you know, she's a teenager, it's a tough time of life, and I was so scared that she was going to feel like she had a time bomb inside of her, that she, uh -huh. that she didn't know if she had or not even, and that this was going to define her life. Um, so I had to really get to a point where I felt okay about things before I could talk to them where I didn't feel panicked. Uh -huh. And I dealt with my therapist a lot to talk about, to figure out how to do this. And I waited pretty much until it was a couple of weeks before my first surgery to tell them. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, my husband and I discussed it and we decided we're going to just be as straightforward as possible, not give them any more information than they need, but also open it up to questions. So we sat down and um, my son is very technology obsessed. So okay. he knew that I had done 23andMe and he had been asking me over and over like, I want to see your results. Let me see. Let me see. It's so cool. So cool. Let me see. And I was like, no, no, no. Oh, look at that other shiny thing over there. Just forget about that. Right. So I hadn't shown him the results. Um, so I sat them down and I said, you guys remember I did this test and I got some news from it, which was that I have a gene that puts me in a very high risk of getting breast or ovarian cancer or both. But if I have some surgery, it will take that risk away. And my daughter said, well, you should go have surgery. <laughs> and I said, I'm going to. And I said, do you guys have any questions? What, do you want to talk about this? And they said, what's for dinner? <laughs> and that was kind of it. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, you know, I mean, it, the, there was a difference between that conversation and then seeing me go through surgery. Um, I don't know that my son completely understood the surgeries I was having. I did discuss them with my daughter. How old is your son? He's 12. Okay. But when I sort of mentioned that my breasts were involved, he sort of went, I don't, I don't want to hear it, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> um, my daughter, I don't even think she internalized that this meant potentially meant something for her too until a couple of days ago. Hmm, interesting. Do you, is that related to you having written about it and getting a lot of response to your article? I think so, because everybody around us has been talking to us about it. Uh, and some of her friends actually read it. Um, I don't know if she read it or not. But I explained to her that there's a 50% chance that she'll have it, which means there's a 50% chance she won't have it, and that she's got half of her dad's genes and half of my genes. Um, my, my husband is not Jewish. He's, uh, he, he's, he's from Britain, and he's got sort of a lot of a, a very Anglo-Saxon background, and I feel like uh, marrying him was one of the best things I ever did genetically because I, <laughs> I kind of shook things up a little bit in the genes pool for my kids. So, so. It's, always, it's always nice to stir the pot. When yes. <laughs> yes, I was really glad about that. So, but, you know, she saw me get through it. 
and um, hopefully she feels like she'll get through it if she has to. And who knows where this is going to be in 10 years. And in 10 years, she might find out she has it and she can go and they'll crisper the genes out of her. Like, who, who right. knows? <laughs> right. So it's a lot of time and we won't get her tested until she's in her 20s. Right. And is that, um, has she, it sounds like she hasn't brought up wanting to be tested earlier or does she just assume she'll get tested in her 20s? She did say to me, well, 23andMe saved your life and I guess it'll probably save mine in 10 years. Hmm. So I think that there's a part of her that gets it, um, but she hasn't brought it up. Yeah. Do you have people asking you now, um, like more questions, like, should I take a 23andMe test? <laughs> I have had people talking to me about that. And I've sort of said to them, if you're interested in genetic testing, go to your doctor. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, just the, the fear of doing it through 23andMe and finding out that you don't have something, but you do have it is overwhelming to me. It's overwhelming. Yeah. It's really bad. Have you recommended that that people see a genetic counselor specifically? Yes. I know you got yes. to one pretty seamlessly through your doctor, it seems like. I did, yeah. But it's an individual choice. I mean, and I respect that. Um, you know, people in my family have not chosen to get tested as a result of this, and that that's their choice, and, and I respect it. Was it, yeah, so how did you go about sharing it with, with siblings or other, other relatives? So I have one brother. Um, I told him right away because we're very close. Um, you know, he he is married and he has an adopted child. So he has opted not to get tested, but he's not passing his genes on. And he just sort of feels like he, he doesn't want to know if other things are going to pop up in doing this kind of testing. So... You know, he, he's opted not to get tested, and I, I understand that position. Um, my parents have not gotten tested uh, just because they're, they're older. Um, I don't think they're particularly concerned for themselves, and they know that their daughter has it and <laughs> that their son's not passing his genes on to anybody. You know, I also told my cousins, and they've talked about maybe getting tested. I, I think that they... Some of them probably will at some point. Yeah. Um, I know one thing you wrote in your piece, um, you said, with the growth of DNA testing, it can feel like we're treating serious medical diagnoses as a parlor game, and that's frightening. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, with so many direct-to-consumer tests out there, and I mean, you've pointed out how you, know, you never would have found this out if it hadn't been for 23andMe, um, do you feel like more regulation would help or that there's somehow there could be like more public awareness to make this... Um, you know, less, I guess, for some people, scary in the way it was for you or for other people, falsely reassuring? Either that 23andMe could do or in terms of, like, government regulations. I, I guess I would like to hope that 23andMe would take this on themselves. They're the leaders in the field. And I think that if they made this an important part of who they were and what defined them, that other companies would follow. Um. I think there's a lot of things that need to be regulated. I, it's hard to see government <laughs> prioritizing this. They don't seem to be, getting, be able to get anything done right now. Um, and, I, and I do feel like part of what we're seeing in Washington, a lot of the dysfunction in Washington, is we are sort of turning to corporations to be our moral guides here. And we're asking corporations to be more ethical and to really think harder about what they're doing and how it affects people. And I think that that's becoming an increasing part of the conversation in a lot of industries, but especially in tech. Uh, I think it's something that they struggle with. But it's hard to think of a company that touches people in a more direct way than 23andMe. I mean, of course, Google and Facebook and all those companies are in our lives all the time, but they're not giving us help news. And 23andMe has chosen to do this. Now, they didn't have to do this. They didn't have to offer this health aspect of their genetic testing. They could have just kept it at Ancestry and still probably gotten them, you know, billions of people doing it. But they've made this choice, and I would like to hope that as part of that, they can find a way to 
at least offer people the opportunity to have a human being to talk to. I can't imagine that there are so many people who are getting this news that they that, that it's beyond them to offer the possibility of talking to somebody in that moment. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I wonder if 23andMe would, would go for how many people that would be if they were calling out. Um, like, would you think that you, like, you'd get an email kind of suggesting that you that you set up a phone call or... Maybe you get a phone call. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, the, you know, the, there's different kinds of genes that they're testing for. So there's one that's like you're at a high risk of muscular degeneration. Like, okay, all right, you know, I guess that's good to know uh, whatever I'm going on with my day. There's a difference between that and finding out that you have a BRCA mutation. Right. You know, there's only a couple of genes they're testing for that are really high stakes. Stakes. Mm-hmm. And I think in those situations, they could offer a phone call. Or at least, like, if they send the message, say, here's a number you can call to reach a person to talk to right away. Right, yeah. And I think they do have resources on their website, you know, like linking to, like, links for genetic counselors. But it's, you know, it's click, 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 try to find someone. Right, right. <laughs> And what about um, related to like the concern you brought up with so many people getting negative test results um, and being falsely reassured? Is there a way you can think that 23andMe can better address that so people are less likely to walk away thinking that, you know, they've had comprehensive testing of the BRCA genes with negative results? (laughs) I think every time they send somebody one of these tests, they should have in big red letters at the top of it, this does not mean you don't have a BRCA mutation. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, this yeah. is the one place where it feels beyond um, just like, you know, I'm being sort of spoiled and expecting somebody to talk to me about these results to bordering, you know, being unethical. Yeah. Just because people are so it's, – it's on their website. Like, I know it's there, but I think part of it is just that people are initially – confused by the background information, like the concept that we all have these genes to begin with. And then there's thousands of possible changes. So I think like missing that initial information just makes it much more confusing for people to, to understand the significance of the fact that there's just three changes that are included on their test. It's very complicated stuff. It's really complicated. And it's hard to get this information to people in any kind of form through a tutorial or through written, you know, context. Um, but they made the choice to do this testing. It's a really good point. <laughs> it wasn't an assignment that they were given. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. And I just think that, that these companies that are dealing with sort of medical stuff, just like doctors do, they have to think through the patient experience. And I think that they are approaching it from a very tech company point of view, which is that we wrote down the information for you. Um, we warned you. Uh, you consented, right? <laughs> you know, which is all fine and dandy, but it just, it, it, you know, it's it it scares me very much. It's not how healthcare has ever been done until now. I think, yeah. Mm-mm. And even when you think it's about things like telemedicine or you know long distance medicine and those kinds of things, there's still a person on the other side of that screen talking to you, right? You know, there's nobody talks about robots replacing humans for giving diagnosis. Well, maybe for giving the diagnosis, but not for telling the patient. Right, right. Like delivering the news. It's like nobody sees yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but with 23andMe, like you're getting it in your inbox. Or do you remember where you were, what you were doing when you, when you actually opened your results? I do. I was, I had just been working out and I was coming up from, working out down uh, on the street and I came up into my house and I went to my computer and I was sort of really sweaty and I saw that the email was there and I was just like oh cool the results are here I can't wait to see what it says about <laughs> my penchant for liking cilantro uh-huh. uh, and I opened it and I was sort of like oh okay click 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 and then it was like <laughs> you know you have a BRCA1 mutation, and I just felt like somebody had punched me in the stomach. I mean, I couldn't breathe. You know, I hadn't, it wasn't like I went into a doctor's office. 
which comes with anticipation and fear and stress and all of these things where you maybe don't sleep. Like there's, there's, it's impossible to deliver any of this kind of news without stress and without stress and distress. Mm-hmm. I acknowledge that, but you know, I really walked into my office just opening an email and just sort of feeling really light and and you know just light about the whole situation. Right. And then getting this news and it took a really long time for it to sink in. And I did feel like in that moment I could have easily just closed that, deleted the email, turned around and just wiped that from my memory box. Yeah, just kind of pretended it never happened. Yeah. (laughs) It sounds like your son would have asked you about the results. He would have continued to ask me about it. Um, well, what else should I be asking you about? You know, I do feel like my my story was kind of unique. After this happened, I, I really was like looking for other people who had been through the same thing. And of course, lots of people have gotten genetic testing and there's lots of people who have had mammograms. Um, but it was hard for me to find people who had had genetic testing and who hadn't also like lost a parent. Yeah. Another thing that really surprised me when I was interviewing 23andMe about this was they said that 50% of people with the BRCA gene don't have any family history of cancer. Yeah, that's interesting. So I think um, Mary Claire King, one reason that she specifically is um, who really discovered the BRCA genes and one, one reason that she advocates for population screening, that everyone should be screened for mutations in the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes is just because so often when it's inherited from the father's side, you're not going to have, you know, that's probably where that 50% comes at 23andMe is seeing like men have a higher risk for more aggressive prostate cancer and pancreatic cancer and men can absolutely develop breast cancer. But that, that risk of breast cancer is still lower than the average woman's risk of breast cancer. So it's just when it's inherited from the father's side, so often you're not going to see the family history. It's not going to seem as striking. Um, You know, when it came from the paternal grandmother, maybe you see it in the grandmother, but, you know, and then family size factors in, or, you know, in Ashkenazi population, if you have like, well, people died in the Holocaust. So it's like, you don't really necessarily always have that chance in families to see that history come through. Right. So that's where that 50% number comes from. That's, that's my, that's my best guess. That kind of makes sense on a big number scale. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wish there was some sort of population wide genetic testing and I think at some point there will be. Like the the technology is getting cheaper. This is becoming a more central part of the conversation. Um, I was just reading a an article that was saying that people who take part in the um, all of us is that the name of that big study? Yeah, that they're going to start doing free genetic testing. Yeah, so that study already involves genetic testing, but what they're starting now is they just announced they're going to be working with color to actually deliver the results to people. So. Um, and I think at least initially they're focusing on results in 59 genes that ACMG, um, you know, kind of signaled out when it, we were starting to do whole exome sequencing, which is more often done like in a pediatric setting. Um, but when that started to become more feasible um, to look at like, well, what are the incidental findings that could come up? And what are the incidental findings that are really critical that we definitely want to report on? <laughs> yeah. So they came up with 59 genes, um, BRCA1 and BRCA2 being two of those. Um, they've recently said to genetic testing companies, they put out a statement, stop using ACMG59 in your marketing materials. Like this is not what we were endorsing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, so all of us is going to be re- delivering some of those results. And yeah, in that case, you will get a phone call from a genetic counselor who's going to talk you through this. You know, it's not going to be an email in your inbox. And it also seems like it's a free way to get genetic testing. (laughs) Yeah. Although I, yeah. (laughs) So a lot of, I mean, some, some of these things that are becoming, that are new and more readily available. Um, sometimes like I kind of think of as genetic screening rather Mm. than diagnostic testing depending, which is still a fuzzy distinction. Um, Sometimes the screening could be just as good, but like they're doing 
I think whole genome sequencing. So they're doing, they're looking at every single one of the genes, but when you're doing such a broad test, you're not necessarily looking as in depth at every single little area. Whereas if you work with a diagnostic testing laboratory and they're looking at family history and they're like, oh, these are the genes that we absolutely need to focus on and make sure we don't miss any little letter or possible rearrangement. It's just, you know, a negative result means a lot more. You're ruling out right. a lot more. So. Right. Well, that makes sense. I, I, I signed up for that um, study and I hope they get a million people to take part in it. Yeah, you I know, did. I did too. <laughs> I'll see if I get a call from a genetic counselor. <laughs> it's exciting. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not actually sure, and I don't know if they know yet um, whether they're gonna. You know, I don't know if they have a plan to deliver things like initially somewhat online, and then a phone call, or like what what all those like details will be. Um, you know, like sometimes you do, I mean, having been at, like sometimes, you know, you call patients and you get a voicemail always, or the voicemail box is full, or it's like a non-working right. number. So all of those, it's going to be tricky to get in touch with people. But so are you a genetic, are you, I thought you were a genetic counselor. No, I am. I am. Oh. But I'm, I'm just saying, I was like, I'll be curious just from a, <laughs> yeah. So just out of curiosity, have you had testing done? I've, I did 23andMe um, when I was a student. I think like, um, I think like others, 23andMe was relatively new at the time. And it was one of those things where I was like, oh, I kind of want to have an experience of being a patient, like getting some results. Um, one of my friends in, in class who's Ashkenazi Jewish, she was like, you have the most boring results I have ever seen. <laughs> Um, but I mean, the thing is it doesn't really mimic the experience of a patient. And then like, I thought everything was very clear and there, you know, after that they were shut down and then they did new things and then they opened, but you know, it's going into it, knowing so much more about genetics, it still didn't really mimic what the experience would have been like for someone else. Right. Well, thank you so much for talking with me and thank you for writing this piece. I just feel like you know, you didn't find stories out there, but I think other people have gone through this. Maybe not that many writers. <laughs> um, and that really makes a difference, you know, someone who's a writer. But I, I really appreciate you putting it out there. And also, I just thought that you're, I mean, I, you know, you always get good and weirdly bad reactions to anything you write. But I just thought it was like such a nice balanced piece on like the pros and cons of, of 23andMe testing. You know, it's not an absolute good and it's not bad. It's just like, it's very messy. Well, thank you. That's actually the highest compliment you can give me. <laughs> so. Yeah. No, I mean, in retrospect, I was like, ooh, it's kind of brave to put that out there. Like, why are people upset about this? How can you possibly be upset about someone doing a test and writing about their experience? But yeah, I really appreciate writing I still don't understand it. people getting upset about it. But people, I guess if you put something on the internet, someone's going to get upset about it. I mean, everybody comes from, you know, who knows what they're coming from with like, they have a cancer story or they have a genetic story, like whatever informs, you know, like their personal experience and take on it. But I'm, I'm guessing that does not come from your piece that comes from something that they're dealing with. <laughs> I think so too. So, well, thanks so much. I love talking with you. Yeah, it was great to talk to you too. Thank you. And thank you for doing this. I really think patient stories, as somebody who's been a patient, I think these stories are just critical. If you'd like to share your story, send an email to podcast at greatgenetics.com. Patient Stories is an ad-free podcast and is unaffiliated with any commercial genetic testing laboratories. We would like to keep it that way. You can now donate to Patient Stories online by going to graygenetics.com slash podcast slash donate. If you don't want to make a monetary donation but still want to support the show in another way, leaving a review on iTunes or sharing our episodes through social media also makes a big difference. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.